Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada. Yesterday, Dr. Neufeld taught us on what happens to us when we lean our ladders against the wrong wall. Well, today we'll be continuing in Romans chapter 3 with a teaching on how God will always get the glory. Let's join Dr. Neufeld now and go back to the Bible. I was speaking to an accountant the other day. He said to me, when it comes to taxes, you have to understand the government will never get the short end of the stick. Now, how many of you know that's true? The government always wins. Now, do you like that truth? Now, I'm ready to wager there are a great many people out there who agree with my statement, but will also say, no, I don't like it. Now, let me try another truth on you. God always gets the glory. I mean by that, in the end of the day, when all the dust and the noise is settled, When we look at what has transpired in both the best and the worst of the human story, every bit of it will reflect back on just how great and awesome is the God who made the world. No, it won't be us. It will be God who always gets the glory. You know, in our study of Romans, we've noticed that Paul has a special interest in the Jewish people. And if we get ahead of ourselves, we'll notice that he spends a full three chapters chapters 9 to 11, discussing the unique history of the Jewish people and what that history means for the gospel and for the glory of God. But here, in the early chapter of Romans, Paul seems intent on declaring the sins of the Gentiles and that of the Jews as existing in two different sets of categories. Yes, both groups are equally sinful and both groups equally need the grace offered up by Jesus. And by the way, it's also true that God shows no partiality or favoritism but that he is perfectly consistent with both groups. And yet, there's a repeated phrase in this text, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The idea that God will judge and show his wrath to the Jew first and also to the Greek, and in the case of salvation, glory, and honor, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile or the Greek. But there's more. Paul then asks and answers a series of questions. Romans 3, 1 to 2 reads, what advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision much in every way? To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But having stated it that way, Paul then is quick to add another two questions followed by his own answer. Romans 3, 3 to 4 reads as follows. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means let God be true and every one a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, even while the Jews were entrusted with the word of God, Paul says the Jewish advantage will not help on judgment day. And that's what Romans 2 is all about. Look at what Moses said about the nature of the law that Israel received. In Deuteronomy 30, 19, Moses is speaking, and he says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. In other words, the covenant contained both possibilities, blessings and curses. Through the law, Israel had the possibility of grasping life or death, and their sad history shows that the majority chose death although there was always a remnant that chose life. And by the way, that same thing can be said about Gentiles as well, can't it? Now, remember, we're talking about the truth that in the end, when the dust has settled and every voice is spoken, God will always get the glory. With this in mind, here's what the history of Israel says about God. The God who is faithful to his promises is also faithful to his threats. 
If God says to Israel, I will bless you if you obey my voice, he also says, I will visit you with wrath if you ignore my voice. You know what we should take from the experience of Israel in this matter? We should take it to heart. Some of us have never understood this. I know some very serious believers who spent a lifetime memorizing the positive promises of God, but we have duly ignored every warning. For instance, consider Matthew 6, 14 and 15, where Jesus says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you will not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. Now, I've heard people say, this can't be true. So we ignore the warnings. We're really not that much different from Israel, are we? And I use that example as one of many. Even though those of us who have the word have great advantages, we must take care lest the advantages that we have are ignored. As James so aptly reminds us, it's possible to be a hearer and not a doer of the word. It's possible to deceive ourselves. So Paul says the advantage that the Jew has will not help on Judgment Day because they forgot that the God who is faithful to his promises was also faithful to his warnings. Here now is the second observation. God's faithfulness is seen clearly against the dark background of human sin. Listen again to what Paul says. Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true and every man a liar. So here's the important point. Remember how God always gets the glory? Here's what happens when Israel is faithless. The more unrighteous a criminal is, the more righteous the judge appears. Hear me. Everyone in the sound of my voice will glorify God. Indeed, everyone in your city and municipality will. Everyone in this country will glorify God. And the same is true of everyone in this world. Some will bring him great glory as God ushers them into his presence on Judgment Day, demonstrates that they're sinners, and judges them in righteousness. It will be glory for God who will be shown as the God of perfect justice. And some will glorify God because God will demonstrate how their sin has fallen onto the Son of God who bore our sin for us. And therefore, God has demonstrated his justice by crucifying the Son as a substitutionary atonement. But in either case, God shows forth his glory. He always gets the glory. Some of us have a view of God that goes something like this. We rebel against God. We tell him to get lost. We go on our own way. And then we imagine that we give him the back of the hand and think God comes to us and has lost his chance for us. And if we don't give God another chance, he loses again. And we imagine God losing most of the time. He simply can't get it done as he tries to convince us. Nonsense. If we rebel against him, we'll play right into his hand as God is glorified through your faithlessness and condemnation. I remember a number of years ago, Kathy and I took a trip through a cave, and they turned the lights out, and you're beneath the Earth's surface. It was so dark that not even the small glimmer of gray could be seen. And then a small light was lit, and it was but one small light, but it was absolutely spectacular. It was brilliant. It was the most beautiful thing that one can imagine. It struck out into the darkness. It pierced it to such an effect that one could literally see the glory and the majesty of light. See, that's the picture of Judgment Day. There will be a contrast between the blackness of human sin compared with God's righteousness, 
with human faithlessness contrasted with God's faithfulness, with human lies contrasted with God's truth. And in the blackness of human deeds, God's glory will be so overwhelming and so exquisite and so beautiful and so lovely and so breathtakingly stunning that all that can be uttered is glory. Some of us will say it with love, with tears flowing, with overwhelming gratefulness, and others will say it with agonizing despair. And that's what God intends. He intends to show forth his glory beyond description. And this truth leads to a further revelation. See, Paul has been saying that the Jewish advantage will not help on Judgment Day, and that the God who is faithful to his promise is also faithful to his threats, and that God's faithfulness will be fully revealed up against the blackness of human rebellion. Now Paul adds the next stage in his marvelous unfolding of God's glory, and here it is. The desire for God's glory leads to mercy. Look at verse 4b. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. This is a quote taken from Psalm 51, verse 4. Psalm 51 was written by King David after his sin. You'll remember that the king was at home while his troops were off to war, and as he wandered on the roof of his palace, he looked over and saw a beautiful woman taking a bath. And to make a long story short, he slept with her and had her husband placed in the most dangerous spot on the battlefield where he died and then married that woman. And after some time, God confronted David with his sin. And then, in great remorse, David makes his sin as public as he can. Imagine that. He wrote Psalm 51 and made it available to all of God's people. And it was David's desire to make his sin as as open as possible and more to make it appear as dark and as abhorrent as possible. In fact, that's what this quote is all about. David is saying that any action that God does to avenge his justice upon him would be just. In fact, David wants God to be shown as ultimately righteous, faithful, just, and glorious, and he wants his own actions to seem as dark and as evil as they actually are. Let my evil actions demonstrate the character and the beauty of the righteous God. Now, we might hear that and say, David, wait a minute, why would you want that? But David wants to say to us, well, it's in saying these things that I find mercy. See, here's the amazing truth that when God's glory is seen for what it truly is, and we delight in that glory, that we will find mercy precisely at that point. I'm going to say more about that when we come back. God always keeps his promises. He is faithful and his light shines brightly in the darkness of our world. How can we glorify him? by confessing our sins and choosing to commit our lives to his service. As Dr. Neufeld explained, regardless of our choices, God will still get the glory. He always does. As Jesus' followers, how can we prepare others and ourselves for the great event of Judgment Day? Well, we'll hear more from Dr. Neufeld right after this break. Last call. To join us for our Back to the Bible Canada Laugh Again cruise this March 22nd to the 29th. There are still a few openings available to join us for a great time of spiritual refreshment, rejuvenation, and laughter. That's right, laughter guaranteed to inspire you with new hope and a lasting joy. Join myself, Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, and special musical guests Amanda Stott and Jay Calder. You can call for more information or to register now before it's too late at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. 
Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. We've been talking about David's desire. David wanted God to be glorified more than he wanted to conceal his own sin. If in highlighting my sin, God is glorified, at least that's how he would put it, then he would say, let it be. Now, I love what Augustine said about that matter. He said, the first time that God and the sinner ever agree on anything, it's when the sinner repents. At that moment, for the very first time, the sinner and God are actually on the same side. Both amazingly agree, this is utterly sinful. And by the way, that's how you'll find mercy as well. As long as you or I are trying to cover up our sin, we're going to die. The way to forgiveness is not by wanting forgiveness. Everybody wants forgiveness. The way to forgiveness is by wanting God's glory. See, it's not about you. It's about the glory of God. That's why God made the world, and that's why God sent his son for your sins. If you think it's about you, your ladder, as I said yesterday, is definitely against the wrong wall. It is about God's glory. And that's how the cross functions. It demonstrates the depravity of human sin and the depth of God's mercy. It's about his kindness and his grace. And all those attributes just reflect back to God. They're about his glory. See, the apex, the greatest expression of his glory is his mercy. And in the cross, the greatness of God is seen against the depravity of humanity. Now, as we read Romans, we find that Paul has been teaching this for about 20 years, and he's used to hearing every conceivable objection to what he's teaching. In verses 5 to 8, we find two of the most common ones he's heard. Let's read them, first of all, in verses 5 to 6. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath upon us? I speak in a human way, by no means, for then how could God judge the world? See, the first objection simply goes like this. If every time I sin, and for that matter, the sum total of a lifetime of sinning only serves to accentuate or highlight God's righteousness, then wouldn't God be happy about my sins? I mean, after all, when I look bad, it makes him look good in contrast. And if that's so, what right has he in condemning me? After all, I'm doing my thing, he's doing his thing, and in the end of the matter, he always looks good no matter what. And because that's true, what does it matter how I live? And that's an important question, and to that, Paul provides three amazing answers. Let me give you the three reasons why our faithfulness to God actually matters. Reason number one, because God is qualified to judge us and the world. Have a look at the beginning of verse 6, where Paul says, by no means. There's a, that's a Greek phrase, and it's a very hard phrase to translate. The best English equivalent is, not a chance, or no way. He responds to people who say, God will judge the world because he's God. He's just. He's righteous. His justice demands he condemns sin wherever and whenever it's found. Now let's look at the second objection. Verse 7 to 8 reads, But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. In order to understand this second question, I want to go ahead to Romans 6, 1. There Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now go back to Romans 3, 8. And why not do evil that good may come? See, it's the same question. 
Some people who have been carefully listening to Paul have heard him say that the only way to get our sins forgiven is to receive his forgiveness as a free gift from his hand. That's right. In other words, it doesn't matter how sinful you are. The more you sin, the more grace pours out from God's hand. If that's the case, they say, then live as you want, for grace is a free gift, and God's got no end of his supply of grace. And it's sad to say there are a lot of people who would want to say that today as well. They think that if you put your trust in Christ, you can get away with any sin because, as we cavalierly put it, it's all under the blood, man. So we live with a lack of concern for our own sin. And yet, we might ask, what's the alternative? Legalism works righteousness. What's the alternative? So let me try, if I can, to put Paul's words in my own words. For the Pharisees, the legalistic Jews, this is how they thought you needed to get on with God. I I put it in a formula that goes like this. For the Pharisees thought faith plus good works equals forgiveness. That's essentially what they taught, but that's wrong. If you believe that, you think that you add or contribute something to your own salvation, your good works. God will not allow you to take any credit for your good works. In the end, all glory will go to him. Instead, here's what the Bible teaches. Here again is the formula. Not faith plus good works equals salvation. Instead, faith equals forgiveness plus good works. In other words, if you believe in God or you trust in God, you'll be forgiven. And by God's act of grace, you'll be given the power to do good works. This is a precious gift from God. He is delighted when he gives to anyone this gift of obedience, for it glorifies him. But this is what those who practice lawlessness believe. They believe a formula that goes like this. Faith equals forgiveness minus good works. They think good works are not in the equation at all. They think they can live and do whatever they please. And that's just a lie. All Paul can say to that position is, their condemnation is just. No one who carries on in unrighteousness has received any gift from God. And in fact, God is not pleased if we deliberately keep on sinning. I'll go one step further. Good works are the way God is changing us to be like him. So why does faithfulness matter? It matters because a righteous God is qualified to judge our behavior, and it matters because God's kindness does not make my lifestyle irrelevant. You know, some time ago, my daughter was telling me of a girl she worked with who was sleeping around, and, and she said at the same time she was a Christian. And when my daughter confronted her, all this girl would say is, I can always take it to God and be forgiven. Maybe that's how you are. Listen to me. If you're living that way, God is not pleased with a kind of blatant rebellion that makes up your life. God is determined to be glorified. After all, God is righteous and just, and his followers are to be like him. Why does our faithfulness matter? Because God does all things for his glory. God will never share his glory with us. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 48, verse 11. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should I let my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. See, why is God forgiving people? He doesn't have to, you know. He's doing it as an expression of his glory. And when we become what Paul later calls God's workmanship, he's glorified. Just like an artist when he's created something beautiful is glorified. Just like a doctor after he's healed a patient is glorified. Just like an architect after he's built a magnificent temple is glorified. So also when God has created something beautiful in us and through us, he is glorified. Let me tell you how to put your ladder against the right wall. 
today, tell the Lord that you finally understand that this is not about you. I love the story of Hudson Taylor. You know, he'd sacrificed his life on the mission field, and he was asked by someone about the great sacrifice he had made, and he responded in this way. He said, I never sacrificed one thing. I did this for my own good. And what I did, I saw God change me from a hell-bound sinner to an object of his glory, and it was beautiful. See, how about you? What will you say about all the things that you do? I mean, why don't you join me in a word of prayer as you commit yourself afresh to living for the glory of God? Heavenly Father, we all confess that so many times we live for ourselves. We think of our salvation only in personal terms. We never think about glorifying the God who made us and how when God transforms us, he is shown off to be the kind of God that he is. Father, forgive us. Help us to get our eyes on you. Help us to see you in all of your glory and find joy only in you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John, we've covered a lot of ground today and a lot of important stuff, uh, but I want to go back to the formula that you mentioned because I'm no mathematician. So maybe you give me a little bit more clarity. You said faith equals forgiveness plus good works. Help me with that a bit more. Everything that we have from God comes by faith. We trust in him and he gives us gracious gifts. One of those gracious gifts is forgiveness, and we all know of that. Forgiveness comes through the cross of Christ. Uh, we've sinned, and Christ has borne our sin away, and we are made new in him. So that's one of the gifts we have. Good works is another gift that God gives us. In other words, he gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to do good works, and the good works actually glorify God. So good works don't contribute to our salvation. They come as a result of our salvation. That distinction is really essential because if we think that good works earn our salvation, then we're taking glory for ourselves instead of giving it back to God. I think that's what I'm trying to communicate. So God in graciousness not only forgives us, but allows us to be workers of good. John, thanks so much for uh, your message today. We've covered an awful lot of ground, Uh, but where are we headed tomorrow? Yeah, tomorrow we're going to talk about sin some more. I almost hesitate to say that, Ben, because maybe the hearers are saying, wow, we've been talking about sin a long time. But Romans 3, 9 to 18 talks about just how sinful we actually are, and I think we do need to hear that. It's because the depravity that's within us, when we really see it for what it is, we're going to get a new view of the cross. So hang in there, and we're going to look at this in in greater detail, and it will give us an insight into the cross in ways that perhaps we've never seen it before. Thanks so much, John. We look forward to tomorrow as we go back to the Bible. The second half of today's message is a reminder for us to take a look in the mirror. Do our lives reflect faithfulness to God? Do we seek His glory or our own? Tomorrow, Dr. Neufeld will continue his series in Romans, The Heart of the Gospel, with a teaching on sin. Join us, will you? I think you'll want to hear what the Word has to say. Tomorrow on Back to the Bible Canada. If you're a regular listener to Back to the Bible Canada's daily program, you're most likely familiar with our vision. We're committed and passionate about leading people of all ages and backgrounds forward in their relationship with Christ. We recently received an encouraging word from Laura, who called us to say, I've recently heard the news about Dr. John Newfeld, and I'm looking forward to have him lead your program. 
I have followed your program since the days of Theodore Epp. It has been a wonderful, encouraging journey for me. Praise the Lord. Our goal is to see people walk closer to Jesus every day, and that's why we teach the Bible. It is the truth for life. If you've been impacted by this ministry, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca or you can even email us at info at backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.